On the morning of January 28th, 2020, it was a Tuesday, and one of the world's top chemists was arrested on Harvard's campus. He was then the chair of Harvard's Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology, a name often thrown around for the Nobel Prize. But by Christmas Eve the next year, he was a convicted felon. The New York Times headline on December 21st, 2021 read, quote, In a Boston court, a superstar of science falls to earth. What's his story? From Clinton Street, this is News Talk. I'm Frank So. Today on News Talk, Charles M. Lieber, a pioneer in nanoscience in a case that has shaped the future of U.S.-China educational collaborations. My name is Miles Herzenhorn, and I am a Central Administration reporter for the Harvard Crimson. I'm Brandon L. Kingdollar, and I'm the managing editor of the Crimson. As a junior reporter, I covered Charles Lieber's case in person at John J. Moakley Courthouse in downtown Boston. Thank you so much, Brandon and Miles, for being on the show with us today. So we're talking a little bit about the Lieber sentence. Could you tell us a little bit about Lieber himself? Who is he? So Charles Lieber is a former Harvard chemistry professor who previously served as chair of the chemistry department and in 2017 was appointed to be a university professor. That's the highest ranking uh, designation you can essentially have as a Harvard faculty member. It means you can teach at any school um, in the university. He was someone whose name might have been considered for a Nobel Prize in chemistry. So could you tell us a little bit about what exactly Lieber did that got him into legal trouble? Lieber was a very prominent chemistry professor at Harvard for a very long time, ran a lab, got lots of federal funding for his research. But he also had a partnership in China and was paid by the Chinese government to open a lab in Wuhan. And so he did not disclose a lot of this information and was arrested on Harvard's campus in January 2020. Under the Department of Justice's China Initiative, which sought to essentially counter what they described as academic espionage, primarily from China. He was placed on paid leave by Harvard and charged with lying to federal investigators about taking funding from the Chinese government. I wonder if you could fill us in a little bit about the history of this trial. Before last Wednesday, how did we get to where we were pre-sentencing? So throughout the course of 2020 and 2021, we saw it essentially move toward trial. So let me just give you the rundown of what Lieber was convicted of. The two primary charges in this case, I guess you would say, are uh, you know, two counts of making false statements to the government. Uh, and first of those came in 2018, and he was receiving funding from the Department of Defense and the National Institutes of Health. Investigators were looking into Lieber's ties to the Thousand Talents program, which was a uh, Chinese government-sponsored talent recruitment program, um, basically seeking to uh, bring foreign scientists or, or, or use their uh, knowledge to advance uh, the government's uh, goals. In 2018, investigators interviewed Lieber, asking essentially, uh, you know, are you involved in this, this program, right? What are your ties to this program and to China? He denied knowledge of the program. He denied that he was involved. The government continued to look into this. And in late 2018, Harvard received a request from the National Institutes of Health to uh, to basically conduct a, a review of, of Lieber, um, you know, to make sure there's no, like, financial conflicts of interest, essentially. Um, and um, through that, in 2019, he basically signed off on uh, a letter that they ended up sending to the NIH um, saying, like, yeah, he's not involved. 
but Lieber was recruited as part of that program through his work with the Wuhan University of Technology. So in the 2018 interview and the 2019 letter, those were false statements? Those two are the, the, the false statements. And it's important to note, it's not illegal or it wasn't a crime to be involved with the program. Um, something that Lieber's attorneys, um, you know, made clear multiple points throughout the trial. But lying to government investigators from the Department of Defense and the National Institutes of Health, it's illegal. And Lieber himself admitted to lying? During that 2018 interview with Department of Defense investigators, uh, you know, as, as I said, Lieber told them he wasn't involved in the Thousand Talents program he, he told the FBI in 2020, uh, his post-arrest interview with the FBI, quote, I wasn't completely transparent by any stretch of the imagination during that interview. Obviously not something that uh, you necessarily want played in court. He also said, related to the other four felonies, which are uh, tax-related offenses, two counts of not reporting uh, income from the Thousand Talents program in 2013 and 2014, and then two counts of not reporting a foreign bank account, um, which the program also provided him with. Basically, he also said that if I took the money back and I didn't declare it, that was, quote, illegal. In the run-up to the trial, Lieber's attorneys sought to exclude evidence that uh, proved damaging to the case. Uh, that includes, probably most prominently, uh, his post-arrest interview with the FBI. Now, Lieber's attorney's argument was essentially that, hey, at the beginning of this interview with the FBI, uh, Lieber said, uh, quote, I think I uh, maybe need a lawyer. Uh, and... You know, they didn't stop the interview at that point. They didn't give him a lawyer. Um, he ended up just continuing to talk, and that was what his attorneys had sought to exclude. But ultimately, the judge ruled, no, uh, they're going to get to see that FBI interview. Again, they played that in court, right? The jurors heard that. So what were the results then of that December 2021 trial? After the jury saw all the evidence, what was the verdict? Yeah, so it was a remarkably fast trial. Uh, it only lasted six days in court. Um, it was just before Christmas of 2021, and a jury found Lieber guilty on all counts. They only were deliberating for like a few hours. It, it did not take them long at all. He was convicted, and his uh, attorneys essentially sought after that to void the conviction. They were basically citing the fact that, okay, mere months after Lieber's conviction, uh, the uh, Biden administration, they shuttered the, the China initiative, right? I mean, this was a this was a Department of Justice initiative that was embroiled in controversy. I mean, uh, two other prominent uh, cases that they brought against professors were resulted in either just charges being dropped or, uh, in another case, an acquittal um, right around that same time. And so Lieber's case uh, was a key victory for that initiative, and it was also a rarity in that it was uh, a case that— um, that, that resulted in a conviction. Um, it was also pretty unique in that the majority of those cases, um, you know, were pursued against researchers of, of Chinese origin. Lieber's obviously a white man. Um, so, so, you know, but that, that, that initiative did face allegations of, of people saying essentially that it was, it was discriminatory in who it was, it was pursuing. I mean, it was literally called the China Initiative, right? It was, it was completely focused on, on academic espionage related to China. And that in, meant that essentially that, you know, researchers with international ties were being pursued more than anybody else. 
So the trial ends, and we have a period of at least months, right, before we get to the sentencing from last Wednesday. What happened in the intervening months? So following Lieber's conviction in December 2021, there was this initial period, basically a few months, um, where Lieber was seeking, again, this conviction to be voided or like to have a new trial, but that also failed. Important context for Lieber's sentencing is that uh, he was diagnosed with late-stage non-Hodgkin lymphoma, um, which is considered an incurable lymphoma. We learned from a sentencing memo filed by his defense that uh, Lieber's in remission, but that usually only lasts a period of years. Um, And, you know, they basically are saying he's still going to need extensive medical care and he's immunocompromised. Um, you know, he, he wore a mask throughout the trial. This was taking place during like the height of the pandemic, um, at like his criminal trial. So earlier this year, Lieber, uh, quietly retired from his post as a university professor at Harvard in February. And then we moved towards this sentencing hearing in April. So I wonder if you could give us a rundown of this sentencing last Wednesday. To set the stage, the defense was seeking no prison time for Lieber, right? Out of concerns for his health, his lawyers said that Lieber may not have more than five years to live. In light of all these considerations, the government, the prosecutors in this case, asked for 90 days of prison time and $180,000 fine, which included restitution to the IRS. Ahead of his sentencing, Lieber paid $33,600 That's the estimate for essentially the tax revenue lost from the income he didn't report from the Thousand Talents program. The prosecutors are saying, we still need to set an example. Um, You know, we can make accommodations for his health, but he needs to serve this time in prison. Um, And uh, they they say a quote that really sticks out to me, which is that um, basically we shouldn't uh, be treating a professor at Harvard any differently than we'd treat like a, a janitor at Harvard. Um, you know, saying like, actually, because of the substantial trust put in place with Lieber due to his uh, position, like they needed to kind of set an example of him. They needed to make sure he doesn't kind of skate off here. Lieber's attorney, Mark Mukasey, said during the sentencing hearing that Lieber did not deserve a harsher sentence because just the very fact that he was sitting in the chair in the courthouse being sentenced by a federal judge sent a very clear message to academics scientists, researchers, that what Lieber did should not be done. And so Lieber himself also reads a statement before the court. And this is these are his most substantial uh, public remarks pretty much since his conviction. Uh, he spoke, you know, very little to the press. He didn't really say anything on the record to the Crimson um, in the lead up to his trial. Uh, he didn't testify at his uh, at his had his own trial either. Um, but here he says he, he essentially apologizes to his family, his friends um, and uh, colleagues um, for for kind of putting them through this. Uh, and he also apologizes really um, movingly to his late mother, um, who he did not get to spend time with at the end of her life because of all of this. Uh, and it was a really emotional moment. Um, Lieber uh, broke down in tears in court while he was reading this. 
and uh, I'll quote from it here. It brings me great sadness and tears often that I couldn't be with her as I should have at the end as a result of my actions. Your memory is still very strong and dear to me, Mom. I will forever love you. And yes, the results of the sentencing then? Yes. So ultimately, uh, Lieber's sentenced to one day in prison. Um, now, he doesn't have to go back to prison to serve this um, because, you know, after his arrest, he was he was already incarcerated for two days. So they're, they're essentially saying, OK, you're sentenced to time served. Um, he's also going to have two years of supervised release, six months of which he'll be under house arrest and pay a 50 thousand dollar fine in addition to that money he paid uh, for the taxes lost to the irs so um, as often is the case kind of a middle ground between what the defense was seeking and what the government was seeking we didn't catch up with the assistant u.s attorney who argued for the government during the sentencing hearing on wednesday however the judge's decision to give lieber that one day in prison even though he didn't actually have to return to a federal or a state prison to serve that day because he had already done it after his arrest. That was symbolic, and that was very clearly a victory for the government. And, and uh, his defense seemed pretty satisfied with this result. As Lieber was walking out of the courthouse following the sentencing hearing, I was walking alongside um, Lieber and his attorney, and I asked Lieber's attorney, Mark McCasey, his thoughts on the judge's decision. And he essentially said, justice is served. We're happy with how it turned out. Where do we go from here? What next steps can we look to? In terms of prosecuting and going after academics and scientists who are suspected of selling secrets to foreign governments, obviously, this is still a concern for the U.S. government, but we will not see the Department of Justice prosecute these crimes under the China Initiative specifically. So it'll take a different format. The sentencing itself, then, was sort of one perhaps landmark moment in the evolution of this entire Lieber case. Is it more or less case closed at this point? Yeah, the sentencing, the sentencing brought it to an end. I mean, this is something that's been going on for a very long time. So since, since Lieber was arrested on Harvard's campus in January 2020 until April 2023, he has been facing this prosecution trial, then waiting for his sentencing. So in many ways, yes, Wednesday's sentencing hearing at the courthouse in Boston brought a very long case to a close. And based on the comments from Lieber's attorneys, at least, it seems like they're ready to put this behind them. So one thing that has accompanied this case is a substantial amount of national attention. This quickly became something that was beyond Lieber's trial itself. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about where the national conversation goes from here. So I think it's you can unequivocally say that this has made a lot of researchers cautious about um, collaboration with China uh, in particular and uh, just generally international collaboration. I mean, this has taken place at a, a new height of uh, tension between the United States and China. Are we going to continue to see collaboration between leading scientists in the United States and China, or are we going to see these two uh, research communities uh, lock themselves down uh, or, 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 or not work with each other? I think certainly the Lieber trial has provided a cautionary tale 
it certainly could be that this trial uh, contributes to increasing isolation of uh, academic communities within China and the United States. Thank you so much, Brendan and Miles, for joining us to talk through this case and its subsequent effects on the U.S.-China research communities. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Next, nine Harvard Kennedy School students who tried to deliver an open letter directly to Dean Douglas W. Elmendorf, Dean of the Harvard Kennedy School, and HKS's reckoning with mental health. My name is Asher Montgomery. I am the Harvard Kennedy School reporter for the Harvard Crimson. Thank you so much, Asher, for joining us. So we're talking about soul keepers and mental health issues at Harvard Kennedy School today. I wonder if you could broadly talk us through the contours of this story. What are the basic details here? Yeah, so the story is about nine students um, who showed up at Dean Elmendorf's door one morning with the intent to show their faces and hand him a petition calling for better emotional well-being support at the Harvard Kennedy School. And they specifically want him to say that he is supporting this effort. And the Soul Keepers originated from a class called Public Narratives, taught by Marshall Gans. And it's about, like, public organizing and using past experiences to create, like, social change. These students uh, came together and, and found a, an issue that, that meant a lot to them. And at the Kennedy School, there's, there's been quite a bit of talk about mental health. They, they just hired Jimmy Kane as the Senior Associate Director of Student Support Services. They just hired him in January. This allows students, you know, to have a person on campus that they can make it up 30-minute appointments with at almost any time because there are issues with CAMS, according to students who have tried to use their services. CAMS stands for Counseling and Mental Health Services. They have a support line for Harvard students who have mental health concerns, and they also have a location in the Smith's Campus Center. So these issues have been like a high concern for students and faculty at the Kennedy School, um, specifically since, I mean, probably before too, but um, there was a suicide um, at the Kennedy School. One of the um, students, an FBI agent named Mateo Gomez killed himself in December 2022. And so that's heightened you know, anxiety about this issue. And so members, specifically in his, in his cohort, he was a MCMPA student, which is a mid-career master's in public administration. And these, these students are somewhere like 10, 10 years into their career. They come to the Harvard Kennedy School for about a year. And in order to, you know, get a certification and, and, and learn and take a break from their daily work lives and come to the Kennedy School, these groups are pretty tight-knit because it's, it's a small group within the Kennedy School of older students. And so, you know, this definitely, like, shook up the group, the cohort, and, like, the, the school in general. So the school hired Jimmy Kane, a senior associate director of student support services, but essentially the soul keepers are saying that this is not enough. So I wonder then if CAMS has been able to respond to students' critiques or offer comment to this end. The university spokespeople sent me a summary of all of the improvements that CAMS has made over the course of the year and, and announcements that they have summarized these improvements, including Timely Care, which is a virtual mental well-being platform like telehealth, and then also, you know, improve, uh, increase like full, full-time staff members at CAMS, new trainings made available for students on uh, Harvard's like mental well-being site. So, so these kind of tie into what the soul keepers were were asking for examples of like 
how what they're asking for are already sort of being implemented. So there are overlaps in what the Soul Keepers are asking for and, and what CAMS already provides. So that was their response. So they, so they have been working, they have been making making improvements, particularly since like October 5th when the first announcement went out from Barbara Lewis until, you know, the most recent message being uh, February 15th, going over all of these changes again. So I wonder if you could talk us through the nine students who showed up at the dean's office that morning. Just what went down? Yeah, so when I arrived, they were they were standing group uh, on the second floor of the, the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum in the Harvard Kennedy School building. They waited for a few minutes. This was around like 7.45 a.m. And yeah, numbers accumulated to nine. They approached Dean Elmendorf's office door. And they kind of just stood outside and waited. And Dean Elmendorf was walking down the corridor. He saw the students. They attempted to talk to them. I think they were a little bit nervous. And he just kind of brushed them off and went into his office into a breakfast that he was having. So the dean hosts, like, this breakfast with students every I, – I don't, I don't know how often it is. Um, but, yeah, it was, like, dean's office breakfast event. And so they're kind of like, oh, okay, he just like ignored us. That made them a little bit frustrated. And these, the secretary, Lisa Cohen, she was confused by the amount of people just standing outside. Not gonna be, she's like, are you here for the breakfast? So they, they tell Lisa that they want to give Dean Elmendorf this petition. And it was in particular Sebastian Fernandez who is like, it's going to take us 30 seconds. Like, we're going to get, we're just going to hand it to him. It was very important to them that they handed him the petition and they wanted to read him the petition that they worked on. The petition had three parts. The first part of the petition requests that all Kennedy School syllabi and online course pages include a list of resources and information on the importance of emotional well-being. So course sites being Canvas pages, it really emphasizing the point and offering, like, resource resource links things like that the second part is asking for standalone sessions on emotional well-being during summer orientation for all students so similar to the way that you know take a drug and alcohol course the the third part which we can get into a little bit later is training sessions on emotional well-being for teaching fellows specifically of management leadership and decision courses which is like a, a path of courses at the harvard kennedy school and so that's what the, the petition calls for and they and they wanted to you know hand this to dean elmendorf and give him this little spiel lisa she's like no you can't go in and there were discussions among the students like yeah we don't really want to be violent so we'll just like wait outside so after you know a little bit of back and forth it's like we're going in she's like no She's like, we want to hand it to him. No, they they decide to just wait the hour out till the dean is going to come out for breakfast. And one of the students goes and grabs some Dunkin' Donuts. They're all wearing these stickers with little bears on them reaching for a star. And it says Soul Keepers on it. And so they, they were waiting and, and talking amongst themselves. And I talked to a few of them about, about why they're there, why this matter is important to them, and talked a little bit about some classes that were particularly hard that they felt like they didn't have enough support through. They talked about Mateo's death. They talked about, you know, the transition of, like, being a, in your career and for 10 years and then coming out and having to self-reflect and this like kind of like mid moment for them and and how that can impact mental health and how they struggled with cams and they didn't feel like they got enough support through cams and how they just felt like it wasn't a big enough emphasis at the Kennedy School after after a little bit maybe like 20 minutes Debbie Isaacson's the senior associate dean for degree programs and student affairs 
secretary arrives and she's asking, you know, the students why, the soul keepers, why they're standing in front of the dean's office. She told the students that the best way that they were going to get their message across was by sending an email to Lisa to set up a meeting with Dean Elmendorf. And they were like, well, we tried to set up a meeting with Dean Elmendorf and he hasn't responded to us. It's been three weeks. And she's like, well, did you email him directly? Like, you have to email Lisa. And so the students are like, oh, well, Lisa's right there in her office. So we'll just set up a meeting with her now. And she is very insistent that they need to email her. So the students are confused about this because Lisa's in her office and they just want to set up it. So Lisa comes out and then they're both, you know, they're both talking and they kind of, they kind of change tracks. So like, actually, well, Dean Elmendorf ignored your email because Debbie Isaacson and Suzanne Cooper are the ones who are going to be able to deal with your problem. Suzanne Cooper is the academic dean for teaching and curriculum, and she's also a senior lecturer in public policy. So Debbie Isaacson and Suzanne Cooper are the ones who are going to be able to deal with the students' issues, according to their secretaries, not Dean Elmendorf. The students had already met with Dean Isaacson and Suzanne Cooper. Their next step in their heads was to get Dean Elmendorf to address this issue as well. They, they felt like when one student called Debbie Isaacson and Suzanne Cooper, the small deans, that Dean Elmendorf is, is the head of the Kennedy School. And they want it to be a priority for him and not just for the academic dean and the dean of student affairs. Their meeting in their eyes with, you know, with Debbie Isaacson and, and Cooper were, was, was successful. Like, they, they were agreeing with everything they were saying for the most part. They just felt like the urgency wasn't there. And they're about to graduate, most of them, as they're – it's a one-year one degree program. They're about to graduate. They just want to, like, see something substantial happen um, while they're still there. So they're meeting with Dean Isaacson and uh, Dean Cooper, who are, are the ones who implement changes like this, address their concerns, and, and um, according to the spokesperson from the Kennedy School, they are planning on meeting with students again and are working on implementing more changes, including – the third change about having teaching fellows take mental health, emotional well-being courses before becoming TFs, which the students said after, you know, they told me in an interview before this protest that the deans didn't seem to agree with that piece. It seemed like they didn't agree because teaching fellows are supposed to be an academic component and not have to deal with, you know, caring for students emotionally and that mental well- well-being is seen as like something that's outside of the academic course, something that should be focused on by um, a different position, such as Jimmy Kane, who we talked about earlier, who was just hired. However, the students feel like the teaching fellows have a, have a unique position in the classroom as somebody that can be trustworthy, as somebody that knows what the course content is and knows what, what they're talking about in, in these courses. That can be of aid to students in dealing with like mental health issues and also just more accessible and easier for students to reach out to than you know somebody that they don't know so that's why this part was included in the petition and they, they felt like the dean isaacson and dean cooper did not agree with this at first but according to the spokesperson this is something that they are actually considering now thanks so much for listening we'll take a one-week break next week but the week after please tune back in for our coverage of harvard's 2023 commencement Newstalk is hosted by Frank S. Zoe. 
Our producers are Gina H. Cho and Frank S. Zhou. Our multimedia chairs are Joey Huang and Julian J. Giordano. Our managing editor is Brandon L. Kingdollar. Music in this episode comes from freesound.org. From 14 Plimpton Street, this is News Talk. <laughs>